Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. This can't be a moment when we let people who would threaten physical violence actually prevail and control what is available to our communities. Recently, a rash of anonymous bomb threats have forced evacuations and temporary closures of libraries in and around Chicago. But who's behind them, as well as the motives, remain unclear. I think that it's incumbent upon all of us to stand up and stand together, say how much we value our libraries, any attack on them is not going to be acceptable in Chicago, in Illinois, or anywhere in the USA. I'm Jim Hankey, and today we'll attempt to dig a bit deeper into what's potentially behind these threats, as well as whether this particular strain of intimidation is similar to other eras within the Chicago Public Library's 150-year existence. Let's get looped in, Chicago. Over the last few weeks, libraries in suburban Evanston, Aurora, Addison, Libertyville, and more, plus the city's own public libraries, were targeted with threats of violence against staff and citizens. In an abundance of caution, each of these libraries let the public know of the threat, urging them to stay away, and once empty, many of the buildings were searched for any evidence of a true threat. So far, none have materialized, and the investigation as of this recording is still ongoing. Some have speculated, because no exact reasoning was given behind these threats, that they are timed in response to Secretary of State Alexei Janoulias's recent testimony before a U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Illinois' ban against the banning of books in public libraries. This legislation is important because both the concept and practice of banning books contradicts the very essence of what our country stands for and what our democracy was founded on. We did an episode all about this measure earlier in the summer, so feel free to catch up on that if you missed it for more context. On Monday, to get more information on where these threats have occurred and what's being done about them, I spoke with WBBM reporter Bernie Tafoya, who mentioned that in his reporting, in speaking with American Library Association Executive Director Tracy Hall, that the ALA is not making any particular assumptions at this point about the motives involved. They're being specific about not making accusations because they don't know at this point for sure. Police are investigating. And so what they're basically saying, though, is that, you know, libraries are supposed to be a safe place, place where people can go and find all kinds of materials and have a peaceful exchange of ideas. 
And so this goes contrary to that. According to the executive director, Tracy Hall, uh, she says the rising attacks on America's libraries pose an existential threat to the cornerstone of our democracy. And so she's very concerned by that and says people need to stand up for their libraries. Uh, so does the American Civil Liberties Union. And basically, it's by um, not just going to the library, but um, encouraging others to go to the library, to encourage others to attend library board meetings so that the loudest voices in the room aren't just the people who want to take control over what you or I or anybody else can read or watch. And I think one of the libraries even mentioned that they were closing and sending people home due to a what they called a digital threat, which I hadn't heard before. So I don't know if that's email or, you know, you would think phone tracing comes into this. I mean, what, are, what are some of the things we've learned there? From what I understand, the threats were made via email and they were made over the course of a couple of days. It could be that they came from the same person, people, group. I don't know. Um, but that's what police are looking into right now. And so that's probably what is meant by digital. Um, it came through via email, um, et cetera. And, and generally, you can trace those kind of things unless they're through a VPN. But there are tricks around that. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and on the flip side of that, I've also been thinking about how these libraries let their communities know. There are probably plenty of families on their way to the library and they show up and it's you know all closed off and they're trying to keep people away. They have to act quickly to get that message out digitally to people who you know subscribe to the newsletter or follow them on social media. That in itself is, is kind of an undertaking. Uh, and a lot of people use their libraries in different ways. I know when I go past my uh, public library, a lot of people use it in person but I know people, and I am one of them, who tends to not go into a library, but check out books digitally. I, I do it all the time. So there there may be people like that and people who get their the message via email. Um, and so some people may have shown up to their library and found it closed. And in some cases, it was closed just until the threat could be determined to be a fake. Um, so it wasn't that they closed all day because of the threat. They wanted to make sure police went through, so that used up resources for police to go through and check things out and make sure that what was alleged to be happening wasn't happening. Well, that's the thing, too, is all these libraries need to be checked out. So you're right. These resources and communities, you know, you got to send a certain amount of officers out there to check this out. Uh, that's taking them off other things that they could be doing as well. So, yeah, that's another thing. In speaking with Tracy Hall, uh, the executive director of the ALA, what do they make of these threats? Have they seen rashes like this before? I don't know if they would consider this in an increase or or what they would consider this as. They just think it's a threat on the system um, of free thought, of people being able to express themselves or to read the kinds of things they want to read or look at. Here's one one quote from Tracy Hall. She says, where we have seen the threats accompanied by any type of rationale, of course, there's never been an excuse. Sometimes it's been because libraries are upholding intellectual freedom and whoever's making the threat doesn't agree with that. And so Tracy Hall says uh, there should be a call to action and, and she kind of puts in a plug for this being um, National Library Card Sign-Up Month, which is what September is. And she says, you know, get people to stand up for libraries and, and how important they really are to our society. I wondered after speaking with Bernie, have we seen this sort of pushback against public libraries before? Next, I'll speak with someone who has done a deep dive 
into the Chicago Public Library's 150-year history to try to get that answer. That and much more after the break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Allison Cuddy is a former artistic director of the Chicago Humanities Festival and hosted the recent six-part limited podcast series, Library for the People, examining the vast 150-year history of the Chicago public library system. So I thought more than most people, she'd provide a wealth of information on how this most recent string of threats against libraries look when compared to previous generations. You know, we got our first public library, truly public library, after the Great Fire in Chicago. We didn't have a public library. We had lots of libraries. We've always been a city of libraries, but we didn't have a public one. And a group of people in the UK and Europe donated a bunch of books to the city after this, you know, devastating fire to help replenish our library. Well, we didn't have one. (laughs) Civic leaders of the time got together and really rallied and petitioned the state to have a tax so they could fund the public library. And then we built a public library eventually. Um, But all through this period of time, like there was different spaces downtown where the central library was before we built a permanent building. But gradually people were saying, you know, I want books in my community. I want to access the services here. So they came up with different ideas. Like they would have a delivery system where books will be brought to a grocery store in your neighborhood, or they would create these kind of like the prototypes of the branch system. They would create small libraries in different communities where you could go and look through an assortment of books and get books out. But all of that has really been about the community saying, these are the things that we look to the library for and the library figuring out how to do that. And that continues right up till this moment, you know, thinking about youth services in the library or how to give people access to uh, resources to help them do a job search, for example. Well, what makes the Chicago library system unique if held up against New York, LA, other major cities? Is there anything that really jumps out about what makes Chicago different? There's a number of things. One, the origin story that I was talking about, that that it was sort of this, this tragedy that gave birth to our system. And really the first episode, uh, Sherman Dilla Thomas The urban historian who's really used TikTok as a platform to talk about Chicago really underscored how that fire made people really appreciate and value the printed word, history, documents, archives, all of these things that were lost in that fire. And I think that kind of um, attachment to the library and attachment to the services of the library remains strong today. And I think that commitment to being in every neighborhood to where as much as possible having a library within a short drive or walking distance of your home was part of the mandate from early on. And then I think trying to understand the different needs of community and 
create buildings and collections that reflected those communities. You know, we are a city of immigrants. And really, that was a driving force in how the library built its collection. All kinds of historical migrations to the city had an influence on that. And sort of two sides to this question, I'd be curious what some of the most surprising things you learned in doing this podcast were. But on the flip side, also, you're a journalist and have an interest in this topic. For somebody who just maybe goes to the library once a year, um, or, you know, maybe they frequent a little bit more, but, you know, what would surprise the average Chicago resident? Okay, well, I'll start with that last question first. I think what would surprise people is the variety of things that libraries do. I think everybody knows that libraries aren't just books anymore. And in fact, libraries were early on adopting all kinds of new technologies and digital services. So I think that's pretty well known. But the range of services, I mean, like some of our regional libraries where I spent time that are doing health services, public health services, you know, you can go and check out a blood pressure cough and and take your own blood pressure if it's something you're needing to monitor, or you can get access to healthcare professionals who will help you. Um, There's all kinds of job training going on as people are entering new careers or making transitions. There's many different things being offered. One of the things that I think is um, another really important aspect and what makes Chicago Public Library unique is UMedia, which is a space that was created specifically for teenagers. So if you're over 18, you can't go in that space, but um, if you're younger, you can. And I spent time uh, at a Northside library where um, the UMedia space is just wonderful. Um, They're doing all kinds of things, learning how to make zines. I didn't know that that teenagers today would still be interested in zines, but that my culture is alive and thrives. They had like goldfish uh, and all kinds of plants. And the librarians there told me that, again, it's that call and response that what happens in space is a lot to do with what the teens are interested in. And then they try to figure out as professionals and with their skill sets, what they can do in response to that. To the first question, I think, according to Marg Walsh, who's the senior archivist of Chicago Public Library, we may be the first library, not only in the United States, but anywhere to adopt, you know, intellectual freedom policy. And this happened in 1936 at the Toman branch, which is in Little Village. At the time was more of a bohemian community and they got complaints about books um, from members of a Polish community and members of a, a Russian community. And they pointed to books on the shelves that they thought were um, pro-communist they were too sexual in nature that were irreligious. And previously, when books came under scrutiny, generally what they would do would take them off the shelf and put them in the reference section, right? So you'd have to ask for them if you wanted to see them. That way, nobody could just stumble across them. But this time, the chief of the library, Carl Roden, he decided, I guess because this was the lead up to World War II, There was a lot of anxiety around communism. Um, It was the beginning of these authoritarian regimes. And so he put together this committee and he brought together like clergy, community members, academics, journalists to read and review the books themselves. And their report back to him was that there was nothing wrong with the books. And so he went back to the people who had registered the complaint and said, sorry, they're going to stay on the shelf. And then the community went ahead and not only made that decision, but then codified it and created that freedom of information policy. I think we should all be surprised and delighted by that, that our library has been at the vanguard of like preserving our access to information and another reason to really support your library as much as you can. 
I wonder in doing this show what you've seen as far as the waves of threats uh, in, in American history. Is this similar to other eras? And if so, why? I think what the similarity is that there are these moments, like when we adopted our freedom of information policy, that was 1936. So it's right in the middle of the Great Depression. You have economic instability. You have political instability. You know, a lot of things are up and being questioned up for grabs. And I think that that is a similarity across these other periods during the McCarthy era, where there was a real effort to ban all kinds of books, um, a lot of pressure on libraries and our own current moment. Um, but when I talked to Tracy Hall, who's the head of the American Library Association, she said our moment is like the McCarthy era on steroids. Part of that has to do with the ability of social media, the internet, to really work as a megaphone for a small number of voices, you know, and to kind of escalate these things. Um, I speak for myself that there's a kind of concerted effort to really focus on particular books. I mean, we talked about the books that get the most scrutiny and, you know, you look at those books and most of them have themes about representing people of color, indigenous people, or they are about LGBTQIA people, right? So they have those kinds of themes in it. So it's definitely kind of focusing on diversity of identity. I think that links to previous eras, but it's focused right now on the spaces where you see political advances happening for groups and then this kind of pushback. I think that everyone I talk to on the podcast who's looking at this is both rallying to work against it, but also surprised by the the intensity of it. You know, I mean, I talked to Eric Kleinenberg, who people may know for his book about um, the heat wave in Chicago in 1995, books called Heat Wave. He wrote a book called Palaces for the People and really championing the library as one of those public spaces where particularly we can come together and kind of connect to each other despite our differences, whether those are political or cultural, whatever. Now the library is like a kind of, you know, seen as a threat and in some ways becoming a space where that idea of difference is being challenged. And so I think he was really struck by that, like in the short period of time from when he wrote this book to our current moment, how quickly this has escalated. As we discussed on our previous episode about Illinois' landmark decision to eliminate book bans, there sometimes comes a question about whether or not a book that is being pushed to be banned has actually been read by those seeking to ban it. Allison believes that's a key part to this whole argument. More literacy means more of the right kind of debate. The library is never going to tell you what to read or what not to read. It's never going to look over your shoulder at what you're reading or what you're watching for that matter. It doesn't track that kind of stuff, right? It just helps you find the things that you're interested in. So I think that literacy is really important um, and it's something we can all be involved in to help further our own literacy in these ways. I think librarians do a lot to just try and educate people about how they make the decisions about what ends up on the shelves and why. I mean, some of the books that are on the list um, for this year are like books by Toni Morrison or Sherman Alexie. Lots of people have read those books. They're award-winning books. And so it's, it's not like those books haven't been circulating. But I think one of the things that Tracy Hall said too is that sometimes people who are challenging these books will find one line in a book or a couple of lines and say, this is why this book needs to go, sort of taking it out of context, right? Rather than this is what this whole book is about. 
Well, to close things out, what steps uh, in your coverage have you kind of learned about, you know, what steps can an average library take to be able to combat these sort of threats? Or do they remain sort of a sitting duck, just beholden to any threat that comes in? They obviously want public safety, so they have to kind of, you know, close up. Please don't come here. Get the get the word out. That's what I talked with one of our reporters about is immediately getting out the word through social media or what have you that, you know, you're closed down for some amount of time to check safety on this. You know, what sort of things can they do, if anything? I mean, the thing I'd say again and again is go to your library, <laughs> both get books out from the library, um, but also go there, participate in the programs. You know, there's always strength in numbers. And this is just me talking. But if you have the means, support your library. You know, there's a Chicago Public Library Foundation, which supported the podcast. And you can donate to them. And they do a lot of programming on the library. They don't get involved in the, you know, administrative side, but they help support programs and bring amazing authors to our city. Go to those programs. It's all free. I mean, that's the thing about the library. I think to me, it is such a space of freedom and really embracing that, making use of it, you know, putting yourself in the library is a way to stand up to the idea that there's something that should be discontinued. In midst all the threats, the idea that people would want to shut down libraries is just astonishing to me. We should always be concerned when people are trying to limit our access to information. So you know, stand up for your library. This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jim Hankey. You can subscribe to the program on the free Odyssey app or wherever you listen. And be sure to follow our social media at WBBM Podcasts for visual content in relation to our episodes. Thanks for listening, and we'll keep you looped in again right here next week. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.